Good morning, everyone. Today is Monday, January 5th. This is the Monday Morning Analyst, uh, and I am the host of this lovely podcast. My name is Luke Thomas, Senior Editor at MMAFighting.com. You may follow me on Twitter at SBNLukeThomas or email me at Luke.Thomas at SBNation.com. Not a lot of combat sports action from the weekend. A little bit in kickboxing. I'll just read those results later. The big one, of course, the one we're going to spend the most time on uh, is going to be, of course, UFC 182, John Jones versus Daniel Cormier. Not a lot of boxing action or anything else. Uh, not a lot of jiu-jitsu action either. So um, this was really the focus of the weekend. This was the one that mattered the most. This was the one that everyone cared about. So UFC 182 took place at the MGM Grand Garden Arena on Saturday, um, uh, January 3rd. There were two fights that aired on Fight Pass. There were four that aired on Fox Sports 1, that together put together the prelim card, and then there were five bouts on the main card, headlined, of course, by John Jones versus Daniel Cormier. Um, their attendance was 11575 for a gate of $3 million, uh, $3.7 million, I should say. People were making some issues about whether or not that was a bad gate or whether the, the – not, not a bad gate per se. It's still, I think, 15th all-time for Nevada history, at least in the MMA. Um, but whether that gate portended, you know, a bad result ultimately for pay-per-view buys, I can tell you that there's not necessarily a strong correlation between the two. And I think that if you lived for Brock Lesnar competing in mixed martial arts, you got a lot, uh, you witnessed that. I mean, certainly UFC 100 was well-attended event, but Brock Lesnar was known for being a guy who could do okay, even well at the gate, but the value of him was what he brought to you in the pay-per-view space, that there was a, there was a bit of a gap a lag between the two. They weren't necessarily co-aligned in terms of, oh, he did great pay-per-view numbers, but also really high gates. No, not necessarily. There was there was some discrepancy there at times, and I think I would expect that here. A lot was made of internet traffic. I can tell you that as long as I've been using the current tools that we use to measure traffic, I've never seen an MMA fight like this. If you watched my live chat previously, I said that you know 700,000 might be the very highest that they do, much closer to six. I would revise that up. I would certainly revise it up. I think, you know, I don't know if a million buys is possible, but I I wouldn't rule it out. I think, you know, Dana Whitehead predicted 750,000. I don't know how high it's going to go. Maybe eight, maybe nine, maybe 750, but I'll revise it up. I think here's what I would say. 750,000 pay-per-view buys is very doable. Very doable. There was just a lot of interest from folks. I saw people on Facebook everywhere being like, God, the bar is packed. I can't get a seat at Buffalo Wild Wings or various Hooters or any kinds of other bars. So this was a, this was this event did really well. Uh, may have not reflected that necessarily at the gate, but it did really well. Now that leads us to asking um you know, how, what do I rate the event? As you know, I now on this podcast, I now rate events. I would say that I give it a five out of 10. This was a pretty bad event. Now, the main event itself, as you know, and remember was historical. And so we'll get to that later. That was a really enjoyable moment, but this was really a, a, a fairly terrible event. And, and, and the reason why was one, partly the way the UFC put together the card. There's a lot of people on this card who had no business being in the UFC at all, um, or certainly not Maybe they were trying to control for costs because they knew Jones and Cormier might be expensive or that this is all the folks really cared about. So let's put some stuff on the undercar that isn't necessarily sort of all that uh, valuable um, and save that stuff for later where we need to attract people with a, with a fuller product. That might be an explanation too. Partly it's not their fault because you just get a lot of guys in close matchups. If you went back and you looked at the odds, there was a lot of fights where the guys were you know plus or minus 100 on each side. And when you get that, you oftentimes, you know, you don't want to over-exaggerate the effect, but when you have a lot of fights where they're really close and the odds like that, sometimes you get a blowout, but a lot of times you don't. A lot of times you get a lot of fights 
where the reason why the odds are like that is because it reflects the fact that these guys or ladies are, are really close together in talent. And so it's hard for one person to pull away from the other. You saw a lot of that here. So not necessarily the UFC's fault in some capacity, um, but in the end, in terms of a spectator's perspective, this was a this was almost a one-fight card. Certainly on pay-per-view, it was a one-fight card. Um, it really had a boxing feel. And you know, on this very podcast, I said, you know, we still have MMA expectations where you get a full night of entertainment where there's lots of great fights on the card and lots of big stars on the card or people you care about in some capacity. This was as boxing as mixed martial arts gets. This was a one-fight card, some decent fights on the prelim card, but not a lot of big names, not a lot of you know bouts you were necessarily invested in other than occasionally you got a great outcome on a couple of the, uh, of the fights, but... This was a one-fight card for all intents and purposes. So, you know, that, that may not be that great. I don't think in the end it will actually affect business. Um, but in terms of being a mixed martial arts consumer accustomed to mixed martial arts products, this was a bit of a departure from the norm. Um, but the main event, of course, was fantastic, and we'll get to that in a moment. So let's go over the results, shall we? First fight up, Marianne Renault defeated uh, Alexis Duf- I almost mispronounced her name, Dufresne. Dufresne is how it's spelled. Uh, she won handily, 30 26 30-26, 30-25. This was a fight that was insane. First of all, again, Dufresne, Dufresne, she missed weight. So there was actually a catch weight about 138 pounds. This was a grotesque spectacle. Grotesque. Um, This had no business being on a UFC card. This had no business being on a World Series of Fighting card. This barely had, this had no business being on a Bellator card. Um, Renault was passed over for the Ultimate Fighter, and she looked good. I think she's certainly capable of competing in this organization. She had, if you go, if you watch their BJJ tapes, because again, Dufresne, Dufresne, she is uh, a, a much more credentialed brown belt in jiu-jitsu than Renault. But Renault has a really MMA-friendly style. So what I mean by that is, you know, there are some people who may not be the most technical brown belts. They may be very good. They may maybe be perfectly deserving of a brown belt level. But what they what benefits them when they transition is because they're more aggressive. They like top passing. They like pressure passing. They like mobile passing, but with control of the upper body. And I think those kinds of things are. If you watch tape on Renault, that's what she's got. She doesn't. She doesn't really wait around very long. She doesn't like to play a lot of guard. She likes to get on top and pass. And I think um, we didn't see any BJJ in this fight, but. She generally has that offensive attitude in all portions of her game. But she married that with, I thought, some decent striking. She had good combinations, a long, stinging jab. She didn't lose any of her cardio. Uh, so Renault, I think, you know, is certainly deserving of another opportunity, and she won, so why wouldn't she be? But uh, Dufresne, Dufresne, Alexis, uh, this is, this is a, a, a travesty. First of all, that fight should have been stopped after the second round. Fact. There was no business having that fight go to a third round where she was taking unnecessary damage uh didn't and to joe rogan's point did not even know how to basically defend herself was you know a lot of times we get two people who are of equal weight but one's a lot taller and maybe that taller person lacks just a bit of finesse on their striking sometimes a little bit you see that in jessica penny and they get they get they get pieced up as a consequence she was getting just annihilated didn't know what to do except to like slightly lean off to the side at times not even approximating head movement no real jab no jab cross to speak of looked like she was moving underwater after the second or third round so this was a horrible fight and 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 chris Tanoni uh let it roll the referee 
Ty Noni. Um, he, he should have stopped it after the second round. We always have this attitude because there's so many ways to win in mixed martial arts that you hold on to this fantasy about the possibility of what could happen. That gets people in trouble. That gets people hurt. Managers, corners, and referees need to have much more realistic expectations about what actually is happening. There needs to be some kind of mercy, tech fall, informal rule that is taken seriously because she went out there and got hurt in that third round, and that was ridiculous. That did not need to happen. Uh, Omari Akhmedov defeated Mats Nielsen by, via decision, 29-28, 29-28, and 29-28. Nielsen came on late in the third but kind of gave up the first two rounds. Another close bout, certainly not a bad one by any stretch. Uh, Akhmedov won for a couple of reasons. He was a little bit – he was backing up a little bit but was a little bit uh, more active with uh, punching volume and combination. There were kind of wild strikes, but he had his feet under him. They were heavy. Uh, certainly when he needed it, got the takedown. He faded late. Um, so that's why Nielsen was able to take that third round, but he showed good base, good takedowns, um, good defense when he needed it. So when Nielsen wanted to go to the ground, he was able to stop it. Even when Nielsen was able to get to the ground, uh, Nielsen had a pretty good guard. Um, but Achmed was able to back out of it or get the defense he needed. Always had the right kind of posture at the, at the right kind of moment. Nielsen was, they were making a lot about his guard and he does have a very good guard. I, I will say I was kind of impressed by it. But here's the thing about having the Nogi guard and, like, look at the difference between he and Donald Cerrone. And Cerrone got that Omoplata, which we'll talk about in a minute. But I just mean in the case of Nielsen. Nielsen was the kind of guy, he was working a high guard where you sort of climb up somebody. And you can do that in, in a Nogi competition. And you can certainly do that in Gi where you can climb up on your feet and then hold their lapel, you know, bring your elbow to your to your ribs or your elbow to your hip. And then you can really control their posture. And so you, and my point being is you can slowly climb your offense up. I just don't think that works very well in mixed martial arts. It's really hard to climb on someone unless they're underneath. You know what I mean? There are ways to slowly advance position, but underneath doing it, it's, it's hard unless you really, really have tight control over their body. And that high guard by itself, as you can see, is not quite enough. you got to have a couple of other things going on in play. I think a lot of, of guards in MMA, like, like Cerrone, like, you know, he didn't really climb into the omoplata. He just shot it immediately. You know, there was, it, it, just, it just latched on. That's, if that's an opportunity for you, I think. Or if you want to have a no-gi guard, you got to have a lot of misdirection going on. Right, you got to be like having a hook under their armpit and throwing them to the side to get them to plant on a hand. And when they plant on the hand, you go over to the Kimura, things like that, you know. Um, or you know, you come on the other way, you 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 plant them on the hand, so they on the hand, then you dig the underhook and go for the sweep or something like that. You have to do misdirection, but I just think slowly trying to climb on someone from underneath in mixed martial arts, unless you get really tight control, otherwise, or they're hurt or something. It's not going to be that great for you. Certainly, Nielsen didn't look bad. I would not say that, but there are. I, I think. I think he's got the skills. Just needs to retool some of the strategy, maybe, and then sharpen up some of the offensive takedowns. Evan Dunham defeated Rodrigo Dam by decision, thirty twenty seven across the board. This was the first fight on the preliminary card on Fox Sports One. Um, an okay fight. I thought Dunham's striking looked pretty good. What was interesting was he was actually piecing up Dom. Um, with his straight left to get him to move right, but then he was constantly meeting Dom with the right hook. And this was in the first and second round. And so he sometimes got Dom after, I think, a round or two, a round and a half, to then move him back into his power hand, which was pretty clever and pretty adept on the part of Dunham. Um, not a lot of jujitsu or wrestling at all to, to speak of here. Dom never shot, which was kind of interesting. I wonder if that had anything to do with injury. You know, you, you're, you're getting... 
you're getting kind of crushed on the feet. Why not do something about it? Maybe he believed that, you know, he wants to put on a show because by the third round, he was like slapping himself in the face and saying, come on. Um, it didn't really do much. It, it didn't Dunham kind of bit on the bait, but not, not enough to matter. Um, but Dunham looked good, had a nice crisp, long jab going, took center of the octagon, had Dom backing up. Probably could have done a little bit more to cut, cut the ring off, but I think he was happy just to have the, you know, the open space to, to bang on him um, it, rather than sort of forcing a wild exchange where you can get caught. Because, you know, the thing about backing someone to the fence is they're in front of the fence, but you can't really move a lot either. You're kind of forced to stand in front of them. You can kind of move to the left and to the right a little bit, but you, that's why those da- those exchanges are so dangerous and why you see guys on both ends usually getting tagged. It's because, well, you've backed them into the fence. Okay, that's great, but now you can't move much either because you have to face them off. Um, a little bit of opportunity is, is there for you, but you've, your, your field of, of opportunity is also narrowed, so that becomes a problem. Uh, not a lot of speak of here on Dom's side. He had a couple of good body kicks, um, um, underneath the the guarding elbow of Dunham, but the, uh, not a memorable fight. And you know you have to wonder about Dom's future in the UFC. He's valuable insofar as they need him for shows in Brazil, but otherwise he's an unremarkable uh, lightweight. Josh Sean Jordan defeated Jared Cannonier uh, at two fifty seven of the first round via KO. Again, short fight, not a lot to speak of. Cannonier looked like a lighter heavyweight. This was a heavyweight fight, but uh, good movement. Actually, if you go back and notice, he was slipping jabs really well uh, and punches generally. I actually thought his head movement was pretty awesome. Good footwork, looked light on his feet, looked a little bit faster than Jordan, which is not to say much. Jordan's a bigger guy. Um, but in the end, a, I believe it was a right hook that came and sort of landed to the side. I wasn't in the back of the head, but the side slash kind of sort of back of the head, a legal shot, I think, by most ways, in which they measure the mohawk and the earphones and, and you know, what part of the open spacing here in between them is open. Uh, so it's a legal shot, but he ate it and went down, and then a series of punches finished him off from there. Uh, a needed win for Jordan, who had not looked so good against Matt Mitrione and um, has changed camps a couple of times. I think he needed to prove he could win and get back in there. And this was a guy he should have dispatched like that. And he did. Now, so I always want to make claims about this, which is to say, you don't want to read too much into a win like this. But one one thing in Jordan's benefit is people say, oh, well, he fought Jared Cannonier. What does that mean? Well, listen, if Jared Cannonier is nothing, then Jordan will dispose of him quickly like he's supposed to. And he did. So he did exactly what he was supposed to. There's a limited upside in what it all means, but you do have to give the guy credit. Like, this didn't go three rounds. Jordan took a couple of punches from Cannonier, but Cannonier's real remark- remarkable and memorable thing was his movement, his defensive movement. It wasn't so much his offensive firepower. Um, and, and Jordan outclassed him, at least certainly was able to strike hardest first. And that's important, and you have to give him that credit. But that that's that still tells you he is a guy worth watching and can do important things. But you don't want to then say, "Oh, well, he deserves now, you know, a top ten guy." We still have to have you know managed incremental growth here. Uh, big prospect had a good show, and Cody Garbrandt took on Marcus Brimage via TKO. He stopped him at just four fifty in the third round, so he has some work to do in terms of getting things done a little bit quicker. Um, so Garbrandt was one of these prospects at an alpha male where if you looked at him, you'd be like, my God, just some tattooed guy, you know, you know, uh, looks like a dude bro slash inmate 
why would I take this guy seriously? But then you watch tape on him, and it's impossible to deny his talent. I mean, he's got an incredible amount of talent. You could see how fleet of foot he was, athletic, quick movements, could get you know vertical for those jumping knees in a heartbeat. A um, couple of issues I had with him in this fight, though. One, and this I think is something he developed just fighting guys who were just overmatched uh, uh, against him in the regional scene. A lot of his offense comes from these pocket explosions. So he likes to get in these exchanges in pockets because he has great power and superior hand speed. So he's able to strike damage first, and then guys cover up and he finishes them off. And that's where a lot of his offense comes from. In other words, he doesn't have this sustained jab he's able to sting you with or or jab cross hook where he's able to rock you and then slowly over the course of like 15, 20, 30 seconds, maybe a minute long, hurt you enough to where you begin to sort of crumble piece by piece. He likes to put you away all at once. And that's fine against guys at the regional level. And if he keeps getting better, maybe it'll be fine against guys at the UFC level to some capacity. But it's never going to work against the best guys ever. It's just not going to work. Those guys are not going to go away like that. Um, again, one thing people always have to remember is getting to the UFC is partly a function of skill. But a lot of these guys have a durability we just take for granted that – you shouldn't. These guys can take a beating much more than the average MMA fighter. Even, even if they had no skills otherwise, they're much more tough. So that's just not going to work. Uh, again, these guys are also going to have better defense anyway. They might get tagged by one of Garbrandt's shots and then circle out and cover up again and not do that again. So he, he was a little bit frustrated because he couldn't quite find that home run shot. Now, he rocked him a few times, especially in that first round. Second round wasn't so great. Third round, he was able to put him away. Um, so the things we knew about him, I think, are still great. Great hand speed, great power, has a good right – Has actually, both hooks are good for him. Um, but needs to mix it up. I'd like to see more of a jab. Some of his punches when he gets going are kind of arm punches because he's so strong. I'd like to see that technique cleaned up a little bit. I'd like to see some uppercuts added. I'd like to see a few more leg kick hand combinations work together. And I'm sure Dwayne Ludwig or, or Martin Campman or whoever he gets a chance to work with will adjust those things. He's a young kid. He will get better. Um, so he's got all the athleticism. He certainly has all the pocket courage, but he also did lack a little bit of head movement. He was getting pieced up a little bit too. So, so some things to be concerned about there if he doesn't right the ship, but all the reason in the world to believe he can ride the ship and can get better and can do the things that we expected. But Marcus Brimage, I feel bad for the guy. I think, I think he fought pretty you know, valiantly for the most part, but was just overmatched from the beginning. Paul Felder defeated Danny Castillo with a spinning back fist at 209 of the second round. Paul Felder, man, what do you say about this guy? Um, first UFC outing was entirely unremarkable, not this one. This one was great. He looked fantastic. I mean, everything was flowing for him. His single leg takedown defense was superb. And again, what have I always stressed? I think I'm, you know, I'm, I'm wrong about many things. I am sure. I am right about the fact that if you're going to have good takedown defense in mixed martial arts, it is not just stopping the shot. It is stopping the shot and creating separation. The quicker you can create separation, not only does that you know, bring your offense back to life because you're not, you, know, you don't have your hands on someone defending yourself, you're now back to an offensive stance. But more importantly, it, that, if, if you can create separation quickly, you create doubt in the mind of your opponent so much. It's like, oh my God, I can't do anything to this guy. I got to sit here and, and box him up. Um, so great single leg takedown defense. Obviously, his movement was fantastic. Head movement, footwork was great. Getting off at angles. Hand combinations were fantastic. And the leg kicks, my God, they were unrelenting inside, outside. Uh, beginning of combinations, end of them by themselves. He was throwing them. Castillo wasn't checking him. So he did exactly what they tell every student in kickboxing to do, at least the Muay Thai. Keep kicking him. He's not checking him. 
throw it until he dies. Throw it, throw it, throw it. That's exactly what he did. Um, ending sequence was brilliant. He had thrown, I think, some spinning attacks previously in the round, um, but it was a kick on the on the left side, the right, the right, a right kick from Castillo on the left side of uh, uh, Felder blocked it when the when the foot came down. They were in tight proximity, but also he had planted his weight. Uh, Castillo did so. Then Felder whips around and cracks him with the uh, spinning backfist, which landed flush and put him out cold. Uh, incredible performance by Paul Felder. Really, really, really impressive. Just so technical and fluid. And we'll see what he can do against guys who are a little bit better and, and want to exchange with him and then hurt him first. But but if you stand in front of him, you know, you're going to have problems. And I think the other thing about Danny Castillo is like Danny Castillo has great wrestling and great guard passing and good ground and pound and good cardio. But the problem is you you knew at the beginning of the round and the beginning of the fight, there was no chance he, even if you didn't know anything about Paul Felder, like Danny Castillo, you know at some point he's going to want to wrestle you. Like you just know that's his path to victory. And when you know that, it just creates such an, a measurable dimension of someone's game. Castillo's guy did something about it. You know, I don't know how much longer he's got as a pro fighter, probably a little while longer. I don't, I don't mean he's retiring anytime soon, but um, you know, if he really wants to do something where he gets past a certain stage of fighters, this is this is a requisite. Everyone knows that Castillo's going to try and wrestle you. Like there was never a point where it's like, well, he might wrestle because he has good wrestling. No, he's going to wrestle you because that's just what he does. And I think that really creates some predictability in him that that is unfortunate. Uh, Hector Lombard defeated Josh Berkman via unanimous decision, 3027, 3027, and then 29-28. This was the pay-per-view main card, uh, a pretty dull fight. Both guys turned out to be injured. Uh, Lombard had bronchitis and um, couldn't take any medication because, of course, it would affect uh, uh, drug testing. And Josh Berkman had you know, uh, apparently a litany of injuries and was also sick, and so this just kind of sucked. I thought Berkman did better than folks expected, but ultimately didn't show anything particularly interesting. Lombard did what we knew Lombard could do. Um, had a couple of fast combinations in there, ultimately had just more firepower in the third round, still doesn't really walk guys down, still doesn't have a lot of head movement himself, just relies on that ridiculous athleticism to get in or out of the way. Um, but there was so muted that it's just really hard to read anything into it. Uh, Kyoji Horiguchi defeated Luis Gaudino via unanimous decision, 29-28, and then 30-27, 30-27. I need to look at the judging scorecards because I don't know which round you would give Gaudino, but in the end, it didn't matter. You know, I was a little bit... Uh, I was actually grateful for this performance, and the reason why is because a lot of people are like, you know, Horiguchi, maybe get a title shot. I like Horiguchi. I have a lot of respect for him. He's simply not ready yet. You know, he, he, may, he may eventually get there. I think he's one of those guys where you couldn't definitively conclude that he'll never be that kind of fighter, but he's not right now. He has a lot of work to do. This is, again, one of those fights I talked about where uh, I don't know what the odds were, um, but this is one of those fights, which is to say one guy was better than the other guy, but not by much, and so he was never really able to pull away. So, like, what happened? Well, Gaudino was, in this case, I think showed some improvement in the sense that he's usually not got much for defense, and he had some pretty good defense this time um, in terms of getting out of the way when he needed to in some respects, um, got counter-striking, had some decent leg kicks throughout. But, you know, Horiguchi... You know, first of all, you could see how the big cage was benefiting him. Like when he gets out of the way, man, he gets out of the way, really taking these huge sweeping motions um, to escape uh, the kind of attacks of 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 Gaudino. Um, 
Had a couple of good moments where he one time kicked out the post leg, and then when Gaudino fell, moved right to knee on belly. I thought that was slick. There was one where he had double underhooks, and then on the right side, Gaudino re-pummeled in to get the hook. So what he did was he sort of dragged one of Gaudino's legs out for Gaudino to reach up to grab on to recapture his balance. And when he did, snuck under the underhook again. I thought that was slick. Had like a good one-two combination, I think, in the second or third round. Uh, attempted a couple of flying knees, but never really had any kind of sustained offense. The problem for Gaudino was he would go in there and try to get something going and then get countered. So then he would wait back, and then he would be trying to counter Horiguchi, but was too slow. Um, not that Gaudino is slow, but relative to Horiguchi, he is. So it just didn't really quite work out so well for him. Um, again, not a dominating performance per se, but enough to get the job done. Uh, another fight, utterly unremarkable. Brad Tavares versus Nate Marquardt, 327 across the board. There's not much to say about this, to be perfectly honest. Uh, I like Brad Tavares a lot. I think the problem for me, when, and, they, and they, remember they both exchanged uh, front kicks to the face in the first round. Uh, Marquardt had that going for him, but it was another similar kind of situation where one guy was able to mute the offense of the other for the most part, and the other was able to land just enough offense to make it count. Um, I, I did like also the, I think it was the Uchimata that he threw, uh, on Marquardt that Marquardt was able to eventually counter as he was. So, so Marquardt was trying to drive Tavares back in the clinch and then Tavares with a wizard and then the leg between hit the, the two legs of Marquardt was able to flip him, uh, for the almost flip him anyway, almost an Uchimata. That was kind of cool too. The thing about Brad Tavares is I actually respect his game in terms of his defense. He's actually gotten really good. He has good takedown defense, and he doesn't get – I mean, you know, against the better guys, he kind of gets hurt, but against guys who aren't very elite, like it's, he's hard to hurt. Brad Tavares has a lot of good defense and a lot of good recovery and and is focused the whole fight, and I appreciate that. But in terms of like offensive skills, what would you point to as like his calling card? There's nothing quite there. Like he's got a decent jab. He's got a decent set of combinations. He was throwing good hand combinations and ending with a kick and things like that. But there's nothing that stands out like he's got huge power or, man, watch out for his uppercuts in the clinch or he just hasn't found something in the offensive arsenal that makes him a real serious threat. And I think that's something he – I think it's still within his grasp, but until he has that, that's kind of what's lacking here for him. Donald Cerrone defeated Miles Jury in the co-main event, 30-27 across the board. So we go back to the conversation we had earlier about the kind of guards you want. I mean, Cerrone's guard is perfect for MMA. He gets right to business. You want to take him down, boom, in the transition, he's lighting you up with an omoplata. And I love the way he finished the omoplata. Like, I know everyone was like, oh, Ben Henderson, not Ben Henderson, Ben Saunders. Submission of the year because he got an omoplata. I, I really disagree. If you get a finish with an omoplata and um, you're still on your knees, even if you're belly down, um, you shouldn't get finished. It should not hurt that much. You just don't know what you're doing. That's not really submitting someone who's hard to submit. You know, um, The way he was doing it was a little bit different, where he was creating an angle out. So he was actually still holding on to the wrist and the arm and, and making sure his legs had a good triangle, but not just extending out. Extending out and then moving at an angle like this, not like this, like this. Let me see if I can see if you're if I'm showing you right. Yeah, not like this, but like this. Okay. And so as he was doing that, uh, uh, what happens? He had a hand on the far side hip called a seatbelt, but he was pulling that to the mat. So he wasn't getting him to go belly down exactly, although eventually that's, I think you know, on the scramble, it's hard to hold him, but the idea was to get him to a hip. If you can get them not this way, but like this way, where their shoulders that end, that's how you finish it. The only way really to finish it, it's, it's much easier in a gi because you can grab in a gi, 
Let me show you this. In a gi, you can't grab inside. You can grab the outside. But what's weird is, and this may sound like crazy to you, but you can do it. You can grab inside of their pants, not the pant leg, but around the waist. You can grab inside their pants. So it's uh, if, the, if for some reason their belt is off or it's loose or the gi is loose on top, the gi top, you can just reach your hand inside their pants. And then as you angle out, pull them to their hip and then you can finish it once they're on their hip then they're in trouble then they're in real real trouble uh which he was able to do and hold it for most of the round and then transition to the back nearly had the choke but if you go back and look he was he was cranking on it but not with full full speed or bore he was sort of measured in that way and then after that what happened you know uh don sorony kind of walked him down leg kicked him got in a couple extra punches here and there jab crosses pretty basic stuff for the most part Miles Jury trying to be defensive, but in the end, never was able to get anything going. Third round, uh, he did the old Kazushi Sakuraba FU leg kicks, which was great. Uh, you know, Miles Jury, again, one of these guys who he needed a signature win over an elite lightweight in the division uh, and, and didn't even come close, to, to be perfectly honest. So, like, I respect all the wins that he had, and I respect his abilities. He does have good defensive movement. He is hard to hurt because he's, I think he doesn't get credited enough for being defensively elusive, and, and his footwork is good. It's consistent, and it's constant. But, again, there's, you know, that's just against elite guys. You need to apply pressure. You doesn't mean you have to walk forward and you know you know bang out punches like a maniac, but you need to apply pressure, and that's just not the right way to do it. And then, of course, the one that mattered the most, the main event, John Jones defeated Daniel Cormier across the board, 49-46. Uh, I had it 49-46 as well. I gave the second round to Cormier, and the first, third, fourth, and fifth I gave to John Jones. Go and look at the fight metric stats that kind of bears that out. The one round where Cormier got the better of the striking was the second round. He certainly deserved it. I had people on Twitter telling me, how can you score the third round for John Jones? Not many. I mean, many people did score the third round for John Jones, of course, but there was, I think, some kind of dispute about it a little bit, but the stats totally back up a, uh, a third round for John Jones. He clearly outstruck him and controlled him for the most part in that third round. So how did Jones do it? For me, I would argue that it was it was either way outside or way inside. So on, uh, here's what I mean. When he was way outside, when Cormier was really at the end of his jab, he was able to land some good shots or sneak an elbow inside or the oblique kick or a body kick of his own. Remember, he's constantly throwing head kicks just to get him to block and to hurt his arms and to slow him down. And then where he was having trouble was that in-between range where it was kind of what I would call an open clinch where maybe you have one underhook, and, you know, maybe you're throwing a knee and you're throwing a punch and they're pulling in and they're pulling out. It's not quite firmly established. And that's where Cormier had some great success, particularly in that second round. But when you close the space even more, where Jones has a deep underhook, and this is what saved him, it was wrist control on that, on that uppercutting wrist of Daniel Cormier. That completely shut him down. At that point, he had nothing for him. There was no other real offense to speak of. Um, and it looked like Jones was the bigger, stronger guy. I mean, we know he was bigger physically in terms of dimension, but he may have been the stronger guy too. That wrist control, Cormier got really hung up on that. Um, he just couldn't find an answer to free his grip. I mean, I don't know. I've never, I want to feel what it's like, but John Jones must have gorilla grip, man, to hold a guy like Daniel Cormier like that because he wasn't holding the glove. I mean, you could see how fair the grip was. It was some Noguera, Noguera grip type stuff. Um, Against the fence, I thought the game plan was pretty great. I would have liked to have seen a little more offense from Jones. There were times, again, that second round in particular, I just felt like he was 
He was allowing Cormier to do things to him that was risky and unnecessary against the fence. He was, I really respected what he was doing because he was constantly trying to hang on Daniel Cormier. You notice there wasn't, like once he established a pummeling inside on at least one arm, he would take it and then 50-50 grip and then lean on Daniel Cormier to, to weigh on a guy. I'm telling you guys, that is that is really, really, if you've never done it before, it is awful. It is awful when someone hangs on you like that and you can't get them off of you. It feels like someone's trying to drown you, you know, trying to shove your head like your big brother at the pool, trying to shove your head underwater, and it's just relentless. It's relentless. And then when they're good at it like John Jones, and then they finally establish that 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 C grip wrist control, boy, it's just it's a tough thing to deal with. Um, what, what did John Jones do well? I think one as a general strategy, going to the body. I thought the body shots, no one talked about them. Hooks to the body, jabs to the body, and then leaning on Daniel Cormier. Cormier faded in that fourth and fifth round in no small part because of that, because of the early dividends uh, or the early um, investment, I should say, that was made by John Jones. That was great. I thought by the fourth round, you know, it was interesting, those takedowns, they were like basic scoop doubles, you know. Um, the key to it, they always tell you about is if you can get your hands behind their knees uh, you don't have to be behind the knees but that's ideal and then you get their hands together you, you get in trouble i mean look how long jones's arms are it's pretty easy for him to get his hands together and so are we you know relatively speaking anyway and so it was interesting though he picked him up and dropped cormier but he didn't fall on him right away certainly not the first time he did it again and dropped him um it was just really interesting to me that he it was it was just a show of force it wasn't an actual like tactical thing that he wanted to do. It was just for sport. This guy is in there beating you in certain ways because it gives him pleasure to do that. Uh, and I mean this not as an insult. I mean this as like a compliment. John Jones is, is a psychopath that he's able to. I mean, if you want elite prize fighting, some of it comes with a measure of cruelty, you know, and and that's good because it makes guys do amazing things john jones has that cruelty uh and again that's not an insult that's a compliment um so he eventually tried to tie up some kind of various choke people don't talk about this go back and watch the bader fight he got him with a second choke but attempted a first where he had like literally his fist just in the side of the neck and was taking his other hand and pushing it in he has these weird manipulations of the arm it's partly how he was able to catch machida and machida could do nothing about it you know uh cormier almost got caught in one i think in the first or second round and then in the late uh fourth round but had clearly game planned around it but just something to keep in mind about john jones fifth round sucked i kind of expected more from both guys hard to score i guess jones did enough because he was doing more you could have scored a 10 10 to be honest and i guess that would give some folks a tied bout but in the end there's just no way to deny that jones had done more he had been more active he had done more things um people talked about the eye poke you can say what you want about it it didn't affect the bout cormier even said as much uh, i don't know if you may have said as much we certainly didn't complain about it so you know the eye poke's unfortunate i liked herb dean's warning Hard to take away a point in a championship fight like that. It didn't happen again. Um, so it's not great, but it didn't affect the outcome really one way or the other. Jones is incredible. Uh, I certainly would not say he's the best fighter ever, but he's unequivocally the best light heavyweight. And when you think about the guys in that division like Liddell and Rampage and Tito and Vanderlei and, and Couture and Belfort for a while and all kinds of guys, that's an incredible feat, man. He is, uh, you can say what you want about his dimensions, but it's one thing to have the dimensions. It's quite another to like to knowingly have such ability to use them appropriately and to have the, and to have the, and to have the decision-making that he has this, uh, you know, he makes with the exception of that second round, he just makes good decisions about another guy's offense or how to adjust. 
he's Mayweather in that sense, you know, where um, if you catch him with a couple things early, you're not going to get him later in the fight. He's going to take him away from you. Um, and I really kind of respect that about him. He makes these adjustments that folks just don't give him credit for. I think that's pretty incredible. And also just, you know, I'm going to beat you in a way that sends a message rather than I'm just going to beat you to win. It's like, I know I'm going to beat you, but I want to beat you in a way that you never forget. Like he beats guys in ways that humiliates them or makes them less than who they are. You know, when, when Wyman and Machida had a great fight, no one really like looked at Machida differently. It's like, well, you know, he had a good fight and Wyman was a little bit younger, a little bit fresher, had a good game plan. And, you know, it's just Wyman. But like Jones after Cormier after Jones, you're sort of like, you know, he can get another shot back in there and maybe a second fight will go differently. I will never count out Daniel Cormier. But you look at Daniel Cormier a little bit differently now, I feel like. You look at him like he just could not get anything going. And the reason why is partly because John Jones simply created an atmosphere where it wasn't possible, where he was constantly tying him up and beating him on his own terms. You want to get in the clinch? Fine, we'll get in the clinch. You will still lose, and you will lose handily. Um, and for him to be going and signing autographs an hour before, you know, the stones on this kid is is just incredible. And then I'll talk more in the live chat about this, you know, bad guy image and stuff. I just want to talk about the technical stuff for this podcast, but I don't know how you watch that fight and come to any other conclusion besides one. He has the highest fight IQ in the game, John Jones, and two, the courage, the athletic courage it takes to go and do the things he does where he tries to beat you by sending a message, by giving you the field of opportunity where you have the highest rate of success and then humiliating you on those terms. You, you, you know, I just want to say this about, I mean, this sort of bleeds into his debate. And this is the last thing I'll say. This bleeds into the debate about who he is. Let me just say this and I'll, and I'll stop. Guys, he is not going to be around forever. You know, if you cover the sport long enough, you get into sometimes these beefs with these fighters, but fighters, they're, they're not here very long. They come and they go, man. Even the good ones, they come and then they go. They just don't last very long. And John Jones is 27 and he'll be here for much longer. But my point to you is he's not going to be here for, you know, it'll be, it'll be tomorrow and you'll be like, my God, Jones's career is already over. You know, I would, if I were you, I would give up on the, oh, he's rude and does the suck it stuff, I would take time to enjoy his talents if I were you. Because you're just not going to get guys like this very often. This is a once-in-a-generation talent. The things he can do, literally no one else can do. So if you want to spend your time while he's here fussing over his gestures or his rudeness or anything else, that's certainly your prerogative, and it might even be good for business and you can do whatever you want. It's a free country. I would recommend trying to understand and appreciate what is next level greatness. With that said, let me make one announcement about this podcast. This is the last one I'm going to do live. From now on, I think I'm just going to record them, put a little finishing touches on them, and then upload them. I want to make them a little bit higher quality, and I want to differentiate from the live chat itself. So, um, so there you go. That's it. Email me at luke.thomas at sbnation.com. You can follow me on Twitter at luke.thomas. No, at SBN Luke Thomas. Sorry. And of course, the live chat will return Wednesday. I think there's an MMA beat this week. I need to verify. But of course, um, all kinds of good stuff coming your way all week on MMAfighting.com. See you guys.